0: Filling a gap by providing you with a virtual or on-site HR resource, or providing advice via our HR support line, we'll help you resolve whatever human resources challenge your business is facing. Okay, let's get started.
1: Hello and welcome to another episode of the HR Room podcast. It's that time of year again to guide you through employment law for the year ahead as we explore some of the key updates, topics and challenges HR teams are facing and need to focus on in 2024. And to do this, we're delighted to be joined again by Jennifer Cashman, partner and head of employment at RDJ Solicitors. Thanks for joining us again, Jennifer. How are you?
2: Morning, Owen. I'm very well. How are you?
1: Good, no, not so bad. Great to have you again. And as always, to we're joined here. by our very own Mary Cullen, founder and managing director here at Inside HR. How are you, Mary?
3: I'm great. Thanks, Owen. And always a pleasure to have you here, Jennifer. I've enjoyed our,
2: our uh, pre-recording chat. Yes, indeed. Nothing to do with employment, <laughs> though, Mary, but, uh, but a very interesting <laughs> chat nonetheless. absolutely so
1: we'll jump into the the nitty-gritty and the fun stuff uh, employment law so I suppose Jennifer might just come to yourself first again bit of a blue sky question but I suppose just to give us a bit of a summary overview whatever you think what are some of the key things you think we should be watching out for in the employment law space this year
2: oh there's lots Owen isn't there um I suppose 2023 was a busy year from an employment law perspective particularly from a legislative perspective so that means that 2024 is Equally busy because there's lots of spillover from um, pieces of legislation that were introduced last year uh, that are coming into effect this year. So I suppose just on a general on a general basis, first of all, in terms of of um, HR practitioners and the kind of challenges that they're dealing with in the workplace, there's lots of things um, going on from that perspective. You've got the whole issue around AI, artificial intelligence, and how that's impacting. Um, on the workplace um, how it's impacting on I suppose HR practice and procedure in and of itself but then also the wider question of how it's impacting in the workplace how it's being used in the workplace what policies and procedures do employers need to put in place around that for employees Um, well-being in the workplace uh, still a very big issue um, neurodiversity in the workplace talent acquisition and retention still still issues there uh, changes, of course, around employment permits in the employment permit system since the beginning of January. That will have an impact as well on, on staffing and recruitment. Um, Flexible and hybrid working, which I know we'll talk about in a little bit more detail um, later on. Um, ESG. So there's lots of, lots of things that are on, I suppose, the HR desk uh, from the perspective of the wider organization. Um, and, you know, HR has a very important seat at the at the top table in organizations uh, dealing with all of those issues, all of which, as I say, impact on their own HR practice and procedure, but also impact uh, from, uh, on the wider organisation and on the bottom line from a, from a business perspective. And then in terms of, I suppose, one of the things that HR practitioners are saying to all of us, and you and Mary will, 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 will know this, is that one of the things they're really grappling with is the amount of compliance and regulation and legislation there is in employment law. That needs to be dealt with, and I, I fully agree with them. There's 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 so many pieces of, of employment legislation now, and more being landed on top of us all the time. Particularly last year, as I say, was a particularly busy year from a legislative perspective, and that brings its own challenges in terms of um, HR. So I, I guess that's why Insight HR is, is great to keep um, to keep our, our HR uh, colleagues up to date in terms of uh, latest developments. So in that space, we've got lots of things that. Um, and, Uh, HR practitioners need to take into account for 2024, Um, I suppose first and foremost, we have the long-awaited WRC code of practice on flexible and uh, remote working, or the right to request flexible and remote working. Um, That code of practice, uh, the WRC has indicated, will be published before the end of this month, which is within the next few days. So we're eagerly anticipating um, that code of practice landing. Um, I suppose, in, in that regard, this is a classic case of, I suppose, the law sort of tailing along behind the reality of the situation. Most employers now have their own arrangements in terms of flexible and hybrid working and remote working. They have policies and procedures already in place around it. But I suppose when the code of practice comes out, that becomes the best practice in terms of how you deal with requests to work flexibly and work remotely. So employers will now need to carefully review the code when it is published. Um, And then uh, compare that against their own internal policies and procedures to make sure that their own internal policies and procedures reflect the best practice that's outlined in the code. Ultimately, if there are any challenges brought against employers for a failure to grant a request for remote or flexible working, uh, that code of practice will be the document that will be relied upon by the WRC adjudicators in considering any claims. So that will become our best practice. So so that's imminent in the next few days. um, And hopefully we'll be talking about that uh, on a, an Insight HR podcast or, or webinar again very, very soon and guiding guiding our, our HR professionals uh, through that. So that's a, a very eagerly anticipated development. That's, that's literally um, around the corner. Um, the minimum wage, of course, has increased since the beginning of January. So uh, 12 euro 70 now for those over 20 years of age. A lot of talk about this from a media perspective um, over the course of the last couple of weeks since the new year. Um the government, of course, intends to move to this concept of a living wage um, by 2026. Um, so the target for that would be 60% of the median wage. So the, the the minimum wage will continue to increase for employers over the coming years to bring us to that uh, median uh, or 60% of the, of the median wage, which would become our living wage. And uh, everybody will be aware that, that IBEC has been very vocal on this in the last number of weeks. Danny McCoy from IBEC. And. Um, is uh, IBEC is looking for reduced employers, PRSI, to try and assist businesses with the challenge that, you know, this this development, along with the other developments we're we're going to talk about this morning, which bring increased cost for employers. And so IBEC is looking for um, reduced employers, PRSI, to try and deal with the cost implications of of the uh, the the minimum wage increase and the the increases that are invariably coming down the line. We have a new paid sick leave entitlement. Of course, this was introduced last year. Uh, So January 2023, we had three days paid sick leave for um, employees who have 13-week service with an employer. That three days has now increased to five days since the 1st of January 2024. So this is another additional cost for businesses. Um, So all employees, whether they're full-time or part-time, are entitled to paid sick leave, provided they meet the eligibility criteria, which is the service um, criteria, and also that they produce a medical certificate uh, to cover them for the uh, the, the sick leave day or days. And it's five paid days paid by the employer um, and paid at the rate of 70% of the of the individual's gross earnings, but capped at uh, €110 per day. But again, that's another significant cost from a business perspective that needs to be taken into account, particularly for businesses who didn't have paid sick leave in place already. Um, And then for businesses who do have sick leave policies, there's the whole question, of course, as to whether or not their sick leave uh, policy is um, as favorable or more favorable than the uh, provisions of the Sick Leave Act. Um, And HR practitioners will be aware that we had a case uh, late last year, the first case under the Sick uh, Leave Act, a case against uh, Musgrave operating partners where that whole question came up as to whether or not Musgrave's sick pay scheme um, was uh, as a whole more favourable to the employee who was taking the claim than the provisions outlined in the uh, in the Sick Leave Act um, and that was a really interesting case because there's a provision in the act section 9 of the of the Sick Leave Act confirms that um, obligations in the act don't apply to an employer Who provides his or her employees with a sick leave scheme where the terms of the scheme confer over a reference period set out in the scheme benefits that are as a whole more favourable than statutory sick leave and there are five criteria that are taken into account or that that are laid down in the act which must be taken into account in determining whether a scheme is as a whole more favourable than the statutory provisions. So um, and each of those um, criteria have to be looked at uh, when making the analysis as to whether or not a scheme is as a whole more favourable. And interestingly, in the Musgrave decision, um, the adjudication officer decided in that case that the Musgrave Musgrave scheme was in fact as a whole more favourable. And in, in that case, the employee was out on sick leave for three days. Musgrave had a sick leave scheme, but their sick leave scheme provided four waiting days. So that particular employee didn't get any sick sick pay because she, she wasn't out for, for four days or more. Um, and she, may, she claimed that obviously that was less favorable to her in her particular circumstances, because if she was in receipt of the statutory sick pay, she would have been entitled to paid sick leave from day one of her absence. But in fact, when the adjudication officer looked at the five criteria set out in the Act and looked at the Musgrave scheme, which was quite a generous scheme, Um, over over a 12 month reference period, the adjudication officer decided that the Musgrave scheme was as a whole more favorable. So that was a really positive development from employers perspective. Only one decision, though, um, and one swallow doesn't make a summer, as we know, uh, particularly when it comes to WRC decisions. Um, so we'll we'll obviously be watching out this year to see if there are more cases under the, the Act, and particularly now, where we have an increase in the number of statutory sick days. So we have that increase from three days to five days. So whether or not that will make a difference in terms of an adjudicator's assessment of the criteria under the Act will certainly be something that we're all watching out for, Um, so we'll be keeping a very close eye on that over the course of the next uh, few months to see are there more decisions coming out of the the WRC which are aligned with the Musgrave decision or maybe take a different approach because of the increase in the the number of, of statutory sick days. Uh, parents' leave will be increased from seven weeks to nine weeks uh, in two thousand and four. That can be taken in the first two years of a child's life. Again, another um, um I suppose cost from an employer's perspective It's not paid by the employer, but I suppose from the perspective of um of you know people being absent from work and employers having to have work coverage, that's something that employers have to have to think about. Um gender pay gap reporting. Um, we've had gender pay gap reporting of course for the last uh, for the last couple of years but that will extend now to all employers with 150 or more employees from December 2024 and the snapshot date for preparing your report is 6 months earlier than the December reporting date so that's June 2024 so all employers really with 150 or more employees have to really think about their gender pay gap reporting obligations now in 2024 and all organizations with 50 or more employees will be covered by that obligation as and from December 2025. And again, our snapshot date will be June 2025. So again, that's something that really organizations uh, need to be really prepared for. There's lots of resources there on gender pay gap reporting. There's lots of reports because the reports are published. So the reports are available. So so all organizations um, that have already published their reports, RDJ has, has published its report in December. Um, so. All organizations that have published their reports, those reports are available um to 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 look at. So that's really helpful, for, I suppose, for employers coming up behind now and joining and joining the um the band of employers who have to report on gender pay gap reporting. And you know, it's interesting. there is some positive I shared a, a, something on LinkedIn um a couple of days ago. there there's some positive feedback in terms of, uh, f- for those who, who had reporting obligations over the last couple of years, the gender pay gap is decreasing. Now, it, it's not decreasing, of course, at a rate that that we'd like it to be decreasing, but it is decreasing. So, I suppose it does show that that legislation and that obligation to look at uh, the whole gender pay gap is making a difference, uh, and it's making a it's making a positive difference. It has to be said, the legal profession isn't coming out particularly well out of the reporting so far, but uh, but we're all committed. Uh, to to addressing that um, a, a, as a sector. Uh, so hopefully we'll see that that gender pay gap in the legal sector coming down over the next over the next couple of years as well. But it, it just goes to show that, you know, from a where, where there is a compliance obligation, it, it does help ultimately in addressing um, an obvious problem that, that was there. So organizations really have to kind of look at that and prepare themselves for that and those organizations who have reported have to look at the measures they said that they would undertake to try and address their gender pay gap and make sure that those measures are being addressed in the hope that they might have less of a a pay gap next year. Protect disclosures, again, very important to note that all employers with uh, 50 or more employees have a, an obligation to have internal reporting channels and procedures in place since the 17th of December 2023. And what that really means is that employers have to have a comprehensive protection disorders policy in place in the workplace, so public sector or private sector now it doesn't matter. With the new protected disclosures legislation or the amending legislation that came in um, in 2022, that obligation is there from December 2023 for all employers with 50 or more employees to have uh, their uh, comprehensive protected disclosures policies in place. So the employers really need to give to give to give thought to that. And then of course a big change and another cost for employers that's coming down the track. We've been told still that it's coming down this year is is um, the pension auto enrolment change. Um, and the Department of Social Protection has indicated that the legislation required uh, as the scaffolding for that new system is going to be published imminently. Um, so within the next few weeks, we expect draft legislation to be published. The Department has indicated that the timeline for rolling out auto-enrollment, which is late December 20, or, sorry, late 2024, is still in line. Um, so so we're, we're being told that that, that, that that timeline is still realistic. I think a lot of us felt that maybe it wasn't realistic and that it was going to be pushed out maybe to 2025 or even 2026. But the Department of Social Protection seems to be indicating that with the legislation um uh, the draft legislation being published, that they are working towards that late 2024 timeline. Again, there's lots of resources out there, uh, particularly from pension advisors in relation to um, what employers need to take into account. I shared a very good article on LinkedIn actually last night Um, from Alpha Wealth in relation to that and and the things that employers need to start thinking about. Even employers who have existing occupational pension schemes in place um, need to start thinking about the impact that auto-enrollment can have on their organisation. So again, something that really needs to be firmly on the agenda, particularly where we've been told, as I say, that that deadline of late 2024 is something that's actually going to be uh, achieved. And we'll have the draft legislation in the coming weeks, so we'll know a little bit more then about how you know, the interplay between auto enrolment and, and existing occupational pension schemes, because it's a little bit unclear at the moment how that is all going to work. So employers need to keep a very close eye on that. So lots there, Owen, um, for uh, for HR professionals um, and all of us to take into account from a, f- from a business perspective.
1: Definitely. Absolutely. We can really leave it there. You went into such detail, Jennifer, but it shows the amount of things that are happening, so it's fantastic to go into that amount of detail, especially on things like sick leave, which could be on the face of it. Quite straightforward, but it's not that kind of stuff thank you for that. really appreciate that. Um, Mary, I suppose just another topic that has come up, um, and I know it's not necessarily new legislation or there hasn't necessarily been an update this year, um, but something that we're hearing about, Mary, is probation periods. And it's something that you've probably heard feedback from the team because we know what we're all kind of working on. This is something that comes up a lot, Mary, is in the probation period still, I suppose. Why is that coming up? Are people still struggling with it? It's a little bit of a, a challenge that on the face of it might have seemed fairly straightforward, but it's not really the case, is it?
3: I think a lot, you know, and it's like everything, isn't it? It's, it's, um, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of uh, HR practitioners out there now who, who's, who've got a few uh, sweat beads on their forehead, thinking, my God, you know, how am I going to get through all of these things? Um, Probation, in terms of the management of it, it always comes down the the law says one thing, Uh, the case law says. You know, support settler says another. And then what do we actually do uh, in practice matters a huge amount. And so I still see employers getting this very wrong um, in terms of the management of um, performance during that six-month period and now we're pretty much confined to that six-month period unless we have except exceptional circumstances in the favor of the employee Um, and so i see an awful lot of employers struggling to make those decisions within that time frame largely because they don't have the practices in place Um, i try to encourage our clients to do a one-month review a three-month review uh, uh, make a decision Um, by six months. Uh, Don't let it straggle on. Uh, Make sure that you're communicating clearly with the employee, how they're going and trying to help and assist them as much as possible. Um, But uh, we still, every day of the week at Insight HR, deal with our clients um, having made mistakes in this area or deciding all of a sudden as they come up to the six-month mark, you know, this isn't going to work. Um, we need to we need to terminate the employment of somebody um, and and you know, each and every time that's going to present a difficulty because it's a shock to the employee. And the employee doesn't know that they weren't performing according to whatever standards were in place or those standards weren't clear right at the outset. Uh, and dispute can arise in those circumstances. So probation still continues to be an issue, but I see it more in terms of the management of it rather than anything else. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you'd agree, Jennifer. Are you seeing much the same? kind of thing.
2: Oh, absolutely, Mary. In fact, our, our team, same as your own team, I suppose, was surprised with the amount of queries coming in on probation periods um, last year. Now, a lot of that was, of course, the transparent and predictable working regulations that came in um, last year, which have now provided that probation periods can't be any longer um, than six months. And um, there, there is a provision, however, in in, the, in those regulations that sets out that where uh, it's on an exceptional basis and where it's in the interest of the employee, it can be extended. Um, so I suppose I've seen some commentary where it's, it states, you know, it's, it's for exceptional circumstances. That's not correct, actually. It says where it's on an exceptional basis. What that really means is that the organization doesn't routinely. Extend probation periods, and that this is something that that is being done on an exceptional basis for a specific set of circumstances. I think it's going to almost always be in the interest of the employee to extend if the if the other option is to terminate their employment. Um, I agree with you, Mary, that one of the big problems I think is 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 employers who come after the the probation has um, expired or. There's a, probate, a very clear probationary period in the contract of employment, but nobody has managed it properly. And then they come eight months later to say this person's a complete disaster pr- performance-wise. And the first question you ask is, "Well, what about their probation? How do they get through probation?" Oh well, nobody gave probation any thought. So I think it's really, really important um, to train managers in terms of the real active management of employees during the probationary period. That is the that is the time to to determine whether or not this person is a good fit for the team and i think it's it's probably even more important in in times where we have remote and flexible working going on and maybe everybody isn't together 5 days a week like would have been the case previously um so so it is it is more important i think in those circumstances to have that active management piece and to train managers and we're back to this training piece again aren't we where You know, managers are working under very different circumstances now with remote and and flexible teams. They need to be trained in how to deal with that and how to manage that. Um, And probationary periods is one aspect of that, but one really, really important aspect of it. Um, And of course, really important to remember that from a legal perspective, what the law says is if you're terminating for performance reasons during the probationary period, you can do so without recourse to, to fair procedures. But if you're terminating for misconduct reasons during the probation period, you must follow your uh, your fair procedures. and um, so So that's really important um, and obviously, you have to have an appropriately worded probationary period in your contract of employment then to reflect the legal position, to make sure that you can actually do what you're allowed to do from a legal perspective under the contractual provision. Sometimes we see very badly worded probation clauses and contracts which tie employers in to doing certain things, or we see very detailed and complex probationary policies, for example, which which I think can be problematic because they're tying employers into certain, uh, certain uh, ways of doing things that might not be appropriate in every in every circumstance. So I think the wording in the contract is really important. The management is really important, and the training of managers on how to manage is really important.
3: Yeah, I, I couldn't uh, agree more with you, Jennifer, because it, it's, it's an ongoing issue. I see it coming up over and over again. And, you know, like you say, writing, if you write into a policy that we're going to review you at one month, three months, six months uh, and make a decision at that point and you don't do it, and you don't document it uh, or you do it and you don't document it, um, then you're you're finding yourself in a difficult position when it comes to dealing with the employee, but at the human level as well. And I think it's always important to remind people there are human beings who have left jobs to join your organisation. The probationary period is there to assist people to settle into the organisation, to perform. Um, and to help them understand the standards of performance and the behaviours, the values of the organisation and what you expect of them. If you don't tell people, bottom line, then you're assuming uh, that they know instinctively and automatically what to do. And that's not always the case. Sometimes they look around them and see what others are doing, uh, follow suit and find themselves... Um, you know, not successfully through the probationary period. So I see it as a real area of risk for employers um, that continues not to get the focus and the attention that it needs. So, um, the to-do list is very big for HR people. But again, I would really spend time on this. You know, your onboarding, your probation, and, and what exactly happens during that period and, and make sure it happens. So I think that's important from a HR perspective for, for 2024. Mm.
1: And as we're dipping into a couple of subjects, we might jump to the, I suppose the other side of the employee life cycle or, or relationship, Jennifer, and we might talk about uh, retirement ages. Um, again. I mean, there's legislation there, but it's potentially quite a tricky one for employers as well, isn't it? And we actually saw a case on it end of last year, was it?
2: Yeah, it's very tricky. Um, it's very tricky, and coming up more and more and more. Um, I suppose we have an aging population, so um, so you know we you know, and you'll hear HR practitioners talk about the fact that there is a gap at the the younger level actually now, because so many people are going travelling and um, post COVID, that 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 you know workforces are are, are 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 aging at a at a rate maybe that, that wasn't the case before. Um, so retirement ages um comes up quite a bit. Um, so the law is still the same, even though we've been, we've been told there will be change to the law. Um, but the law still remains that an employer can have a mandatory retirement age, provided it's objectively justified. Now it's this piece around it being objectively justified that's causing some of the uh, problems, I suppose, from a legal perspective. So our understanding from the European case law is the objective justification can be a broad objective justification, so a a sort of an organisational objective justification. And it can be more than one thing. It can be a number of can be a number of of objective justifications in an organisation as to why they have the mandatory retirement age in the first place. So their first job is to justify the fact that, that as to why they have a mandatory retirement age. And then if an employee seeks to stay on beyond that mandatory retirement age, the employer must consider that request in accordance with the WRC code of practice on longer working. Slightly annoying that code of practice doesn't have the word retirement in it, but um, it, it's the WRC code of practice on longer working. Um, and that code of practice effectively sets out how employers should deal with requests by employees who are reaching mandatory retirement age to stay on beyond the mandatory retirement age. And then in After that, the law provides that if you are going to facilitate somebody staying on beyond the mandatory retirement age, you can do so by placing them on a fixed term or specified purpose contract of employment, provided again, you have an objective justification for placing them on that fixed term or specified purpose contract. Now. The issue you were talking about, there's a case um, that uh, came before the WRC has ultimately been appealed and we're now waiting a Supreme Court, a Supreme Court, sorry, it didn't come before the WRC, it went before the courts because it was a judicial review application, because it was a public sector case on retirement ages. It, we're now waiting a Supreme Court decision. Um, and it's the case of um, Seamus Mallon, um, who was a, who was a, a county sheriff um, and was obliged under legislation to retire at 70, and he challenged that. Um, And ultimately, as I say, we're waiting on a decision now from the Supreme Court. But one of the really important questions that's going to be addressed by the Supreme Court is this whole question as to whether or not the objective justification for having a mandatory retirement age in the first place is can be looked at on a broad organisational perspective or has to be looked at specific to the individual. So what's been happening in WRC cases, and I've been involved in some of them, in WRC cases where employees have challenged their mandatory retirement and they've challenged the employer's refusal to allow them to work on longer. And it comes before the WRC, either by way of an age discrimination claim or an unfair dismissal claim, usually an age discrimination claim, not always, but, but usually an age discrimination claim. And what adjudicators have been doing in that in those cases is they've been asking the employer what is your objective justification for having a mandatory retirement age in the first place? And then they've been a- applying that specifically to the individual who is retiring. Whereas, uh, as as legal commentators, we would say that that, uh, that that in fact that's not correct. That that the the question is, does the organisation have a broad objective justification for having a mandatory retirement age in the first place? And if the answer to that is yes, then they do have a mandatory retirement age. Then the next question is, have they dealt appropriately with the person who 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 sought to stay on beyond that mandatory retirement age in accordance with the provisions of the Code of Practice and in accordance with the objective reasons for placing them on a fixed term or specified purpose contract. Um, so the WRC, as I say, a lot of the decisions um, are talking about objective justification for mandatory retirement age is specific to the individual who's taking the case. So the, we're hopeful that the Supreme Court decision in the Malin case, which is due hopefully in, in, the, in, the, in the coming weeks, um, will clarify that position legally um, and will, will hopefully tell us that it is a broad objective justification that the employer must have for. So it's not specific to any individual. It's, a, it's, a, it's, it's a, just an organizational objective justification. Um, and then, as I say, you move on to, to determining whether or not you're appropriately dealing with somebody who wants to stay on longer. That's going to that, that decision is potentially going to be quite um, impactful. On the area of retirement ages because there will be a lot of WRC uh, decisions that are being appealed because adjudicators have taken this this approach of, of applying the objective justification specifically to the individual and a lot of cases are under appeal so it will have a big impact from from the perspective of those labour court appeals potentially and um, so it's going to be quite big from from an employment law perspective so we'll be keeping a very watchful eye on it um over the course of of the of, of the next few months and certainly something for employers to keep into account who have claims against them, to keep into account that this is coming down the track and, and could make a big difference in the defence of any claim. But from a workplace perspective, I mean, it is becoming—it is not becoming a big issue. It has become a big issue because a lot of people want to stay on beyond their mandatory retirement age um, because they're fit and healthy or because their pensions aren't in the financial position that they ho- had hoped that they might, might be for, for various reasons. So employers are dealing a lot with requests to stay on beyond the mandatory retirement age. Um, and there is, there, there is a lot of, I, I think, uh, misunderstanding about how those requests should be dealt with and this idea of putting somebody on a fixed term, a specific purpose contract. So uh, there's a lot there for, for H.R. to do, I think, in the organisation uh, around policies and procedures. I think it, I think this is probably one area where I would say it is important to have a policy or procedure around the retirement process. Another question that comes up for us a lot, actually, as practitioners is, is it okay for me to ask somebody what their retirement plans are or is that in and of itself age discriminatory? Um, And the answer to that is it is okay to do that. And actually, the WRC Code of Practice on Longer Working talks about that and talks about the fact that employers should actually talk to employees six months, at least six months out from their uh, potential retirement uh, to ask them what their plans are. And to ask the mm-hmm. employee, do they intend to go at the, at the age or, or do they or, or do they intend to make an application to, to stay on? But I think this is an important area to have a policy or procedure, have some scaffolding around this area. And I would urge HR practitioners who don't already have policies and procedures in their workplace to devise policies and procedures to deal with it because it, it has become a big issue.
1: Absolutely. And I suppose, Mary, I know this might seem obvious to some, but I think it's an important point to touch on. I mean, when we're keeping up to date with employment law news, all that kind of stuff, it's not all about the... Legislation, codes of practice, which are obviously very, very important. But I think a topic like that showcases the importance maybe of looking at things like case law, practicalities, that kind of stuff as well, doesn't
3: it? It really does. And I think in in the in this role, our HR role has become more complex. Um, it certainly has become more complex since the pandemic and, and HR practitioners uh, are finding themselves dealing with a whole wide range of things like Jennifer outlined at the at the start of our recording um, you know the level and the amount of things that HR people have on their plate on top of the day job so the the day job involves the day-to-day interaction with management the uh, sourcing and and selection of talent you know learning and development all of these things as well as the list that um, Jennifer has put out there and you know it's one thing when you have a HR team it's another thing when you're a lone practitioner maybe with administration support and you don't have this team behind you you know how do you know what you need to do how do you keep up to date and keep abreast of the changes that are coming down the track, the information that you're going to need, the policy developments, um, you know, any impact that there might have on the way in which you currently manage uh, the workforce and your organisation manages the workforce. Um, you know, the practitioners themselves, the experts in this area, it, There's been just so much. We, we've all had to you know scramble to keep up to date but keeping an eye on um what's happening out there is really important and how do you do that you know the the wrc is a good starting point you know to understand um you know the the range of of uh legislation the things that affect employers and and those codes of practice you'll find them there um but then interpreting them is the other challenge. And you know, I've had so many interesting calls, and I know our team have as well, around people trying to substitute their good sick pay scheme for the statutory sick pay scheme, which is less favorable for the employees. Um, and it's it's simply a misunderstanding of what they can do as employers. Um, and what they're entitled to do, and what the actual rights and entitlements of the employees are, so for some employers when when a change occurs, they think oh great i'll I'll swap this out now this is what the this is what the bare minimum is from the law perspective. We'll go with that um and it, you know understanding it, translating it uh, applying it to your organization in my view you, you probably most people require specialist help if they don't have the specialist skills in-house and it always makes sense to you know come to someone like jennifer come to someone like us and have people give a view on your policy or help you construct them or uh, keep you up to speed with what's happening out there in the world but you know case law is important listening to people like Jennifer, going to the conferences, uh, keeping up to speed. Uh, these are all things that we all have to do in our role, as well as keeping an eye on um, all the other uh, changes and developments, including AI. I mean, uh, it—it's the world just changes at such a pace. Um, it, it- It's an exciting time to be part of HR. I don't think in all the years that I've worked in HR, so much has happened in such a short period. Um, And, you know, a lot of HR people are out there struggling or some with their head in the sand um, and some just simply not up to date and all of this being news to them. So, you know, we do our bit on, we we try to, (laughs) to, to, feed what's current and relevant to our audience um, but you know it's, it, it, it's no joke either so I feel sorry and always shout out to the HR practitioners out there.
1: Definitely and you preempted my my final big question because that was going to be a, a, probably the most important question on this on this podcast how do we keep up and how do we stay supported and that kind of stuff I suppose just before we go Jennifer I might just give a nod to obviously something remote and flexible working Um which I suppose has been kind of in the headlines and we're expecting something very, very soon, as you said. It's probably another example of something that, as Mary says, keep the ear out, keep close to what the experts are saying and just kind of wait and see what, what happens. But obviously, pick up that phone if you need support as is well, isn't it?
2: A hundred percent, only Yeah, as I said, I mean, the, the Code of Practice, um, which has been, you know, we're waiting a long time for it. So we're all very excited to see what's contained in it. And there's been a lot of consultation, to be fair, the WRC has been a lot of consultation with stakeholders about what should be in the Code of practice. So. Um, it will be it will be very interesting to see it, but it will become the the accepted best practice for dealing with requests mm-hmm. for remote and uh, and flexible working arrangements. And of course, flexible flexible working arrangements are only available in very limited circumstances at the moment, or will be, only be available um, in very limited circumstances at the moment for those with caring responsibilities. But the government has indicated that it will review it after two years and will uh, potentially roll flexible working. Uh, requests out to all employees so similar to the UK and um, so I suppose this code of practice will, will be interesting from that perspective in term because it'll become the blueprint I think for how those requests are dealt with and I think I mean wh- as I said whilst the law hasn't kept up with the reality of the situation and many employers have their their policies and procedures in place and there's lots of media chat about companies wanting people to be back in the office more this year or whatever um I think it will refresh this area again. So I think it could, I I think it it will bring another round of debate on the whole issue of remote and flexible working. I think it might result in more applications for remote and flexible working arrangements or different remote and flexible working arrangements to the ones that are in place already. So I do think employers need to prepare themselves that this is a a conversation that's going to heat up again as a result of this code of practice uh, being issued. So it will be really important for employers to be ahead of it by understanding what the code of practice actually provides Mm -hmm. for.
1: Definitely, and look, a lot, a lot to think about. No surprises there. A lot to think about this year, but a lot of ways we can we can stay supported and stay up to date. So look, thank you, Mary and Jennifer for a, a very very useful discussion. Uh, thank you to everyone for listening. We we'll catch you next week for the next installment of our podcast. So don't forget to click subscribe and join the discussion on our social media channels. If you are not enjoying these episodes, do please feel to share them with colleagues, or please feel free to share them with colleagues, sorry, friends and family. And even better, if you can leave us a review on whatever platform you're on, we'd really appreciate that too. Uh, We also do have a free live webinar on this very topic with the same guest, Jennifer Cashman, tomorrow, if you're listening on Tuesday when this releases, it's out tomorrow. If you're listening after that, it's on demand anyway, so no worries there. Uh, So do make sure to sign up via the link in the show notes, which we leave right there. And if the remote working guidance comes out in the two business days between this being recorded and this being released, you can ask ask, ask us about it on the webinar too, so we'll have you covered no matter what. And as always, for HR consultancy services and management you can trust, get in touch with us
0: today at InsideHR.ie. Thank you, Mary. And thank you, Jennifer.
2: Thank you, Owen. Thanks, Mary.
3: Thanks, Owen. Thanks, Jennifer.
0: Thanks for joining us today on the HR Room Podcast, the podcast series from Insight HR that helps you create the human resources systems and workplace culture that's right for your business. For show notes and bonus content, go to www.insighthr.ie forward slash podcast. That's www.insighthr.ie forward slash podcast. We'd love it if you subscribe, like, and share the show with any friends and colleagues who are looking for fresh ideas on how to create the ideal workplace for their business. And remember, if you need any HR support, get in touch with us at Insight HR. Whether it's conducting a complex workplace investigation, filling a gap by providing you with a virtual or an on-site HR resource, or providing advice via our HR support line, we'll help you resolve whatever human resources challenge your business is facing. Thanks, and see
2: you soon.